Uh, good morning, everyone. So good to be with you. Greetings to those of you who are joining us online. We're glad you're here. Uh, my name is Abby Odio. I am one of the pastors here at Bethany Green Lake. And we are continuing today in a series Pastor Richard introduced last week. And it's a series looking at the many one another statements that appear in the Bible. I'm so glad we're doing this um, in the time that we're living in, a time of profound cultural division and disconnection. These statements, they call us back to this hard but very good vision of what it means to be the church. This week, our text comes from Mark chapter 9, where Jesus commands us to be at peace with one another. That's a tall order. So let's pray together as we study God's word. God, even um, hearing that command, hearing that invitation, there's just something in me that thinks that's impossible. (laughs) God, there's so much division amongst us. There's um, breakage of relationship, breakage of churches, breakage of homes and families. And God, you call us to another way. And we are very aware that in and of ourselves, we are not equipped (laughs) to do that. But in you, through Christ, we have peace and can live in peace with one another. So shape us by your words today as we seek to be your people of hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I heard a funny and relevant joke this week. Uh, I'm really bad at remembering jokes, but I committed this one to memory. Um, There was a guy, and he was shipwrecked on an island, a desert island, and um, after several months, uh, a rescue boat came along, and um, the the captain of the boat found the man. The man was understandably relieved, and the captain saw that he had built three huts during his time on this island, and he said to the man, what are these huts that you've built? And the man pointed to the first one, and he said, oh, that's my house. And then he pointed to the second one, and he said, and that's my church. And the captain said, oh, great, what's this one? And he pointed to the the third hut, and the captain looked at him and said, oh, that's where I used to go to church. Uh, Of course, this is kind of a lighthearted segue into a much heavier, deeper, serious reality, which is this, we are not living at peace with one another. This week, I was sitting in a coffee shop doing some work, and at the table next to me, there were four firefighters in kind of full uniform having a cup of coffee. And while they were doing that, they began to uh, talk about a meeting they'd had recently. And I didn't catch all the details, but it sounded like it was a community forum of some sort with a large group of people who were gathered. And based on what I heard them describe, there was a fair bit of kind of harsh argument happening at this meeting. And as they talked, one of the guys said in kind of this exasperated way just before they left, he said, you know, I just sat there in this meeting in disbelief. He said, when did open bashing of other people become okay? And where is this all headed? And I found myself thinking about that rhetorical question for a few days. Where is this all headed? And by this, I mean the division, the animosity, the dehumanizing way of relating to one another that has just become so commonplace among us. Any way you unpack that question, where is all this headed, it doesn't seem to end well. Like we have to, we have to figure out how we do this as a nation, as a community, as a church. How do we live at peace with one another or will implode? 
And as that question lingered with and sort of haunted me, I couldn't help but think about how the core of the biblical narrative, the story of the Bible, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus is all really an answer to that very question, where is this all headed? Well, all this is headed, scripture tells us, towards the reconciling, towards the bringing together of all things. This is uh, Colossians chapter one, Paul says, in peace, all things will come together through Christ. And this notion of peace, it, it can't be detached from the Hebrew counterpart of the word shalom, which is a peace that speaks to the world as God would have it be. A world where loneliness is replaced by deep intimacy and connection a world where people do not go hungry, a world where beauty flourishes and the environment thrives and folks live in right relationship with one another and with God. This is the biblical vision of peace. This is shalom. This is where the story is headed. Scripture will often talk about this vision as the kingdom of God. And it's a vision that we must hold before us as we, the people of God, consider that question, where is this all headed? That brings us to our text for today, where we see this scene unfold between Jesus and his disciples. Now, at the heart of it is Jesus revealing to us an important part of our role in this reconciled shalom kingdom. And Jesus does this by engaging a simple but profound metaphor. He talks about salt. So as we today consider what does it mean to be at peace with one another in the midst of such great division all around us, we're going to focus on these three critical functions of salt as they guide that calling. Salt preserves, salt disrupts, and salt makes contact. Salt preserves, disrupts, and makes contact. So first we emphasize this idea, this scientific truth really, that salt preserves. We know this to be true in our day. Just look at the amount of sodium in processed food. It's high because it preserves the content of whatever it holds. Now, keeping that particular characteristic of salt in mind, I want us to turn for a moment to the Old Testament. In the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 13, the king of Israel at the time, who is the great-grandson of King David, reminds an army that threatens to challenge him, an opposing army. He reminds them that his people are bound to God in a covenant. And that word covenant, it's important, it's, it's rich and at its core, It speaks to this binding relationship, a coming together of two things that were once separate. At times, it's used in reference to a peace treaty in the Old Testament. And the king of Israel, King Abijah, he makes this proclamation. He says, don't you know that the Lord, the God of Israel, has given the kingship of Israel to David and his descendants forever by a covenant of salt? So we see in this text a relational commitment, a covenant God enters into with his people bound by salt. Covenants always involve two sides, two parties. On the one hand, this covenant represents God's unending, enduring commitment to God's people and God's creation. And on the flip side of this, God's people are committing to living out God's vision and God's kingdom and God's way. They're committed to, like salt, preserving not their own vision, their own ambition, but God's vision of shalom and wholeness and peace. That's what this covenant is about. Now, this is a bit of important context as we return to our text from today, from Mark chapter 9, where this metaphor of salt is again engaged. Jesus tells his disciples, have salt in yourselves. See, in this kind of not-so-subtle way, Jesus is drawing their attention back to the promise of this covenant. 
offering this profound reminder that in a world of violence and division, they are to be agents of preservation of a different way, a a different kingdom, the kingdom of Shalom. And this command Jesus gives, it comes at the heels of an argument, right, that the disciples were having amongst themselves, a kind of embarrassing argument uh, that far from preserving God's vision and God's way has turned into a sort of me versus them argument with each trying to prove that he's the greatest one, that he's the most worthy. And in this subtle but profound way, Jesus draws their attention away from this divisive paradigm to a vision of his shalom, as if to say, there is no me versus them. There is only God's kingdom versus any power or principality that would threaten that vision. And this is so clear just verses after uh, this argument takes place. When John, one of the disciples says, hey, look, Jesus, someone was throwing out demons, but he wasn't one of us, so we stopped him. And Jesus says to John, why'd you do that? Like he is on, if he's throwing out demons, he is on the side of Shalom. See, friends, part of the problem of this us versus them thinking that our culture has settled into so comfortably is that it puts people into neat categories in which me and my camp of folks are right and holy and good, and you and your perspective or your party or your approach is entirely and utterly wrong. And you'll notice the more time we spend with Jesus studying Jesus's life and his way, the more we see that such categories were and are largely irrelevant to Jesus. Here is what Jesus knew of every person he encountered. Each is deeply beloved. Each has within them the image of God and each is imperfect. Each is prone to live in such a way that promotes selfish gain and and ego and our own little kingdom instead of this vision. I love the way the theologian Tom Wright says it. He says, the line between good and evil runs not between us and them, but down the middle of each of us. And so Jesus insists his disciples become like salt, shifting their focus from that ego level to the kingdom level. Stop arguing. Instead, put your energy towards preserving this other way. Those of you who are local Seattle folks know that a couple weeks back, we were all offered a small miracle in the form of our beloved baseball team, the Mariners, playing meaningful baseball in October, right? It's been a couple years. Um, I love baseball. I love the Mariners. I grew up going to games when I was a kid. And um, so Sam and I snatched tickets to the first game of that final homestand that they had with the Angels. And apparently we weren't the only fans excited because the game was completely sold out. There was something like 47,000 folks in attendance at that game. And just for a point of reference, the average attendance for the season is about 11,000. So this, this was a big deal, right? And I have to tell you, it was a magical night. Like it was the most fun I've had in a long time. And it's strange that I felt that way because they act, we actually lost. Classic, right? Seattle playoffs. But we lost. And in general, I don't like losing. I'm not one of those people who shows up for the experience. Like I'm in it to win it, right? But I have to, I smiled the whole way home. And as I was sort of reflecting on that experience, I realized that the reason I just felt so filled up was because I had the uncommon experience of being in a stadium of 47,000 people all on the same team, all believing and hoping for the same outcome. 
At one point in the game when it seemed like the Mariners were possibly maybe making a comeback, everyone in our section was high-fiving and fist-bumping. There was just like this deep sense, even among strangers, we're in this together. We're hoping the Mariners can preserve their season. And in a world where it seems everything has become an opportunity for, for conflict and judgment and division, I have to tell you, this was like balm for my soul. And in a way, my experience at that game, it serves as a picture of what Jesus is trying to teach his followers. Look, it's not team Peter or team John or team Philip or team conservative or team progressive or team vaccine and team no vaccine. It's about this vision of shalom and wholeness. It's about a kingdom where love and mercy and goodness and compassion are true and lived realities. So stop arguing and turn your sight to that vision. Preserve that vision, root for that team. As we look around at so much of the divisiveness and the lack of peace among us, it quickly becomes apparent that the predominant guiding vision, it's not shalom. And like the disciples, we so easily get stuck on the wrong level arguing about greatness, maybe not in such an overt way, like we're smarter about it. But so often our loyalties are guided by what will serve me and and reinforce my opinion and my power and my ego. And so as we navigate this command to be at peace with one another, we start by simply naming and reaffirming our common calling to be preserving agents towards what God said the world is about, God's vision. And we acknowledge with humility that we all come to that calling carrying both beauty and brokenness, gifts to be sure, every single one of you, but also areas of growth, also areas where we're being made new and transformed. And that means we come to this with humility. Now that affirmation brings us to the second truth about being at peace with one another. And that second truth is this, salt disrupts, salt disrupts. One of the reasons salt was and is such a commodity is because of its antibacterial function, especially in the ancient world. This is right well before refrigeration was a thing. Salt's ability to disrupt the dangerous process of bacteria growth was essential, right? Even I read this week, Roman soldiers were sometimes paid in salt. Like that is how much uh, people coveted this particular item. One Jewish rabbi and scholar comments on this characteristic, writing this, salt preserves and disrupts. It preserves meat for a long time and gives flavor to food. And it also destroys as vegetation cannot grow in a place that is very salty. Now, it's fair that at this point, you might be wondering uh, about this word disruption and how it connects to our call to be a people of peace. Like, isn't disruption the antithesis of peace? Isn't disruption what we are trying to avoid as we seek to live in peace with one another? And that's a fair question. This is actually a pretty popular sentiment in our world. And as a middle child who grew up with some, you know, people-pleasing tendencies, I get this. And while this understanding of peace might keep us from feeling discomfort, this is not the kind of peace Jesus embodied or advocated. In the same way that salt preserves through a chemical process of disruption, so too are we called to be at peace with one another, and such peace at points will require disruption. It's interesting, the Roman Empire was the ruling body in Jesus' day, as we know, and Jesus lived in this empire during a time when Rome had declared Pax Romana, which is uh, Latin for Roman peace. But the, and the Romans prided themselves on the appearance of peace. 
And yet this notion was actually a facade. If you read the historians of that period, it was not a peaceful time. More accurately, Rome ruled by tyranny and fear and violence. And as long as one was willing to submit to the powers that be, right, and carry on without rocking the boat or questioning certain injustices, uh, or you didn't live in a territory that Rome wished to conquer, well, then sure, you, you could live in relative peace. But it, it wasn't the peace of biblical shalom. It wasn't this vision that God had. It wasn't the peace where the poor and the vulnerable were seen and cared about. It wasn't a peace that maintained the dignity and belovedness of all creation. Tom Wright puts it this way. He says, it's quite easy to make peace if you're happy to settle for a little injustice. Well, as we know from the New Testament, Jesus was not happy to settle. Jesus enters our world as the Prince of Peace, embodying peace. And because of this, he disrupts power and injustice and long-held beliefs that do not serve God's shalom. In fact, nearly every interaction Jesus has, there is a holy disruption of sorts, if you think about it. He disrupts the religious paradigms when he heals people on the Sabbath. He disrupts the legal system of the day when he stops the woman caught in adultery from being stoned. He disrupts the life of the woman caught in adultery when he offers her grace and kindness, but then he says, go and live differently. That's a disruption. And friends, as we consider all these examples, it's equally important to note that Jesus's approach was revolutionary because his disruptions never compromised his love or his posture as a servant because, again, he wasn't driven by ego, but by this vision of God's kingdom. This utterly unique kind of attribute of Jesus is captured by the Christian author Shane Claiborne, who speaks about biblical peace this way. He writes, peacemaking doesn't mean passivity. It is the act of interrupting injustice without mirroring injustice. The act of disarming evil without destroying the evildoer. The act of finding a third way that is neither fight nor flight, but the careful, arduous pursuit of reconciliation and justice. See, Jesus's disruption was different. It was creative. It was always oriented towards shalom. It always upheld the image of God in another. How do we do that in our relationships with one another? It's important that we state kind of the obvious and very frustrating fact that we are not, in fact, Jesus. Sure, we're being transformed, but there are times that we need pruning. And because of this, it can be really difficult to know when I'm embodying a holy disruption aligned with God's kingdom, or when, like the disciples, my ego and self-righteous tendencies are actually what's driving my action or my conviction. God continues to teach me so much in this area as I find myself just personally like living and wrestling with this tension, given the world that we live in. About a year ago, I was with some extended family and um, a family member of mine who is a follower of Christ, someone my husband and I love deeply and honestly, made a comment that um, I just, it didn't sit well with me. And it was about racism and um, kind of racism in our nation and the roots of that and the reasons for that. And the conversation continued and we talked about other things. But when I got home, I couldn't forget about this comment, my spirit, something in my spirit was not settled. So I wrote an email to this person and I explained, you know, why I'd found that comment troubling in light of our shared faith. And um, I had my husband, Sam, read the email. I sat on it for a day and then I sent it. I have to tell you, I am not a disruptive person. Like, uh, this is not my nature. This was new and uncomfortable territory for me. 
But within a few hours, he'd emailed me, emailed me back with some of his thoughts and responses to what I'd shared. And what ensued was several months of dialogue between us, mostly via email, around racism, biblical justice, our call to shalom, the, the role of Christian faith in politics. We actually ended up reading a couple of books together and kind of going back and forth. What did you think? What did you agree with? What did you disagree with? What were you challenged by? And let me tell you, this was hard work. To borrow Shane Claiborne's phrase, it's careful and arduous work that requires humility and grace in deep measure. As I sit down to write those emails, I'd often just pray, God, keep me close to you. That song that the choir sang before this, as the service started, come by me. God, come by me. In other words, I know I bring myself, I bring the beautiful and broken parts of myself, the hurt and redeemed parts of myself, the searching and the insecure and, you know, the trying to be brave parts of myself. I bring all of that to this conversation. So please, God, come by me, be with me, help me to be more like you and not just a projection of my own ego or my own pain or my own insecurity here. I'd often have Sam read these emails and sometimes he'd say, you know, I feel like you're holding back here. I feel like you actually are trying to say something, but you don't, you don't want to offend or whatever. And he's, I'd lean into that a little bit more. And sometimes he'd say, no, you need to delete that part. You sound like you're just being a jerk. All that's to say disruption without keeping our eyes on Jesus's way. It's not holy. It's being a jerk at best and it's tyranny at worst. And tragically, tragically, it is weakening our testimony to the world. I cannot tell you how grateful I am for this family member who's on this journey with me. Grateful that I I leaned into this invitation to disrupt. We don't fully agree on everything at this point. It's not all rainbows and butterflies. But I can say with confidence that I've learned a great deal by entering this tension and doing my best to stay near to God in it. And I know, I know if he were here, he would say the very same thing. So as you think about your life right now, my invitation is this. Is there a place you feel prompted to disrupt? Not because you're looking for a fight, but because we live in a world that is still being made whole. And there are places that need disruption. And then second, as you do that, what might it look like to stay close to God as you lean into that space? Who's going to come along with you in that journey? That brings us to our final point this morning, which is this, that salt makes contact. I was recently with a friend who was leaving town the following day to attend one of her childhood friend's weddings. And as we were talking about this trip, she disclosed to me that she was feeling terribly awkward because she was in the wedding, but she'd recently gotten into kind of this back and forth uh, Facebook feud over a political issue with the mother of the bride who she was now, because she was in the wedding, going to have to spend a significant period of time with. And we had a good time sort of laughing about this, and then we decided she had no good options. Like, she could uh, name it right off the bat, she could apologize, uh, she could pretend like it never happened, which is what I think ended up happening. Um, But her kind of declaration at the end of that conversation was just this, I hate the internet. That's what she said, I hate the internet. Now, we do not need to discuss the the pros and cons of the World Wide Web, but Jesus does make it clear for us that embodied contact with other people is good and necessary. The incarnation itself testifies to this. God became human, became one of us in the flesh in order to preserve shalom. 
Similarly, in order to preserve something, salt must come into actual physical contact with that entity. I think one of the things the internet has allowed us to do is to argue and discuss disembodied ideas and opinions, but at the loss of actual embodied communion, contact. We forget that my friend's mom is an actual person, not just one of them. We forget that our arguments over the problem of homelessness in our city involves real souls that matter deeply to God. The people living along the freeway under tarps, they once were a toddler learning to walk. They once were a kid having a fifth birthday party. In our text for today, Jesus responds to the disciples in a way I find so powerful. In verse 36, we read that Jesus grabs a literal child. It's kind of funny. Where'd this kid come from? Uh, But he grabs a child and he places that child before the disciples in real time and says, whoever welcomes this child welcomes me. In other words, do you see this kid, this actual vulnerable human kid? Welcome them. Learn their story. Listen to them. Become a servant. Our youngest uh, kid, Fritz, is nearly two, and he's at that super fun age where he's developing both a will and the ability to speak. And the two together are just mind-blowing and mostly fun. Uh, But the other day I was on the phone uh, while I was with the kids and um, our son Fritz came up to me and said, mom, put the phone down. He's not a mean kid. Like we call him the angel kid around our house, but uh, he said it with some conviction. And I said, I hear you, but just give me, you know, give me a second. I got to finish what I'm doing and I'll help you out. And he said, no, mom, phone down. And he literally stomped his foot right now. And I wanted to like discipline him like a good parent would, uh, but I was so impressed, right? And I, so I said, okay, like point taken. And I I put my phone away and played with them for a bit. Um, But as I considered the words here, as they apply to our context, I couldn't help but think of Fritz's prophetic, albeit demanding words, Put the phone down right now. In the name of being at peace with one another, who might God be inviting you to engage and serve? Phone down in the flesh right now. Maybe you've been frustrated by the problem of homelessness in our city right here in Green Lake. We were on the news this week. Perhaps it's time to get get to know some of our unhoused neighbors in real time. Learn about them. Come serve with our Bethany community meal here on Monday nights. Maybe it's a family member or a person in this faith community you've had to, you know, unfriend on Facebook or or whatnot. Think about what would it look like to take Jesus' word, to take Jesus at his word and actually become a servant to them in some way. Now, this is important. Pursuing peace does not mean everything will immediately be fixed. We cannot control how people respond to us. In his letter to the Romans in chapter 12, Paul tells the church, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace. In other words, offer what you can, but know the outcome is not yours to hold. It's important to name that if, you know, your story involves having been victim of harmful or even abusive relationships, being at peace with that person or perhaps that group is almost certainly beyond what depends on you. God cares about you. God cares about your wholeness. Embodied contact would likely only further feed that pain. 
But it does mean is that we take seriously Jesus's command to become a servant where our self-righteousness has blinded us to the needs of others. And that largely requires being human together, seeing each other as actual image-bearing people. One of the other uh, quite profound times we see this imagery of salt used in scripture is the very first chapter of the book of Acts. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John are the gospels, the story of Jesus. And then we have the book of Acts, which tells the story of kind of post-resurrection and the church. And Luke, the author of Acts, he begins this book by offering a real brief synopsis of events that have happened so far. And as part of this, this summary, he includes the moment following Jesus's resurrection when Jesus is with his disciples, when he shows up to them. Acts 1-4 says this, while they were eating together, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the father had promised. And what's fascinating to me, I love this stuff, is that if you look at the actual Greek, the participle there that's translated together, it actually means being together salted. Now, I want to think of that in the context of what we know about salt. As we named earlier in the ancient world, to eat salt together also signified entering into a covenant or a peace treaty with one another. And so here is Jesus with those same disciples who had uh, been arguing about who was greatest along the road to Jerusalem. The same disciples who would sleep and betray and flee in his greatest hour of need. If ever there were a reason to cancel a group of people or find a new church, I would have said this was the reason, this was the moment. Jesus would have been totally justified from our perspective. But that's not what happens. Here they sit with the resurrected Jesus in real time and space, being together salted, being together in covenant, being together in peace. And friends, this image is such good and encouraging news for us because it means in Christ, it's possible for us, us, the church, to be salted with one another. In Christ, it's possible for us to show a weary world a better way. In Christ, we can interrupt injustice without mirroring injustice. In Christ, we can serve each other and gather around tables of actual salt with one another and have hard conversations in love because our eyes and our hearts are set on the same shalom. We're watching the same ball game. So as the band comes back up, I'm going to just pray that God's Holy Spirit would guide and direct each of us. What's our next step in that? What is God's Holy Spirit inviting us into? How can we lean into this vision of shalom? Perhaps that means taking a moment to repent of just a certain posture or attitude you've held towards the them in your life. Perhaps God brings to mind a a particular person God would have you serve. We'll simply take a moment and ask God, what is my next step in this pursuit of peace? Friends, I believe, I truly believe to the core of my being (laughs) That as a church, this is the most important question in this moment in time, in this moment in history that we can ask. So let's bring it together to the God, our God who holds the answers. Let's pray. Loving Father, uh, we thank you that you came back to that table, that you were salted together with your disciples. God, that is such good news for us that because of the cross, we have peace with you, that we sit in that space with confidence, assurance. 
God, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's wondering about that or doubting that or feeling far away, that they would find comfort and encouragement just being and existing in that truth this morning. God, we also pray that as we uh, learn to live and mirror your ways, that we would not just exist in peace with you, God, but that that peace would translate to peace with others. God, I pray for these friends. I pray for this church. I ask that you would help us to put skin on this. God, show us what is our next step with one another. Where can we be an example of your love, your compassion, your servant? Guide us in that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.